As a Christian, God has placed in your hand a very priceless gift. If you look at it very closely, you will find that there is no price marked upon it. It cannot be weighed because no scale can balance its value. A king's ransom is nothing in comparison to it, and yet it is given to a beggar and a prince alike. The giver asks only that it be used wisely and well. This jewel, rare and unique, is not displayed in any shop window. It cannot be purchased. It cannot be sold. No other treasure holds the possibility that this gift offers, and none can surpass its golden splendor. Of all gifts, this one is the most precious. It has been offered many times before. Today, from the depths of limitless love, it will be given again. It will be left to you to find the golden thread running through it. Only with great care will this jewel retain its luster to you. Carelessness, ingratitude, and selfishness will tarnish the brilliance and break the unspoiled thread and mar the perfection that is there. Guard it closely, lest through weak fingers it slip from your hand. Look often at the fullness of its beauty. Accept it as it is offered from the heart of the giver, and consider it is the most treasured of possessions, for of all gifts it is by far the greatest. And you might know what I'm speaking about, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure now in earthen vessels, brethren. We hold the priceless treasure of the truth of Jesus Christ in these frail human bodies. And we hold this treasure with a great responsibility. We hold this treasure that has been given to us as received from a God who expects and anticipates that we will move forward in the use of this treasure and the dispersion of this treasure the way we give it away, that we will climb higher and higher throughout our lives to give it away to others, that they may come to know the love and forgiveness and eternal hope that we have received. And as we come to John, the Gospel of John, to chapter 4, and finish off this section dealing with the woman at the well, we really have these issues addressed. We have already looked at a number of things here. We've seen a model of evangelism here on the part of Jesus. We have looked at the worship that Jesus was speaking about here. And so much we have already seen. But what I want to look at here as we come now to verse 27, which we've already read over briefly in one message, but we're coming back to now. I want to look at verses 27 and on down through the end of the chapter and draw out basically three things. One is that here we have the realization of the highest goal that each one of us can have in life. Personal goal. The highest personal goal. Secondly, here we have the motivation for the highest cause that we can ever give ourselves to in all of life. And that is the Great Commission. And third, we have the cultivation in this account of the man whose son is healed, we have the cultivation of the highest faith that we can attain to in the Christian life. If we get that far, we'll move quickly through it. If we're out of time when we get there, we'll just have to come to a grinding halt. So we'll just see how we go and may the Spirit guide us. But I want to begin by talking about the realization here of the highest goal for you personally in the Christian life. 
And we come to this section, it begins with verse 27. And Jesus, as you know, has been ministering to the woman at the well. They are out of food. The disciples have gone into the city to buy food. Jesus was exhausted when he got to the well. He's just sitting there. He was so tired that he did not go with the disciples into the city. And on top of that, he had a, an appointment, a divine appointment with this woman. So he's gone on ministering to her and working with her to bring her to salvation. And in the midst of all of this, the disciples come back with all the groceries, all the food. So we pick up the account in verse 27, and it says, At this point, the disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. A lot of reasons for this. One, she was a Samaritan woman. Also, they probably saw her on their way into the city. They probably saw her coming out. And she avoided the, the spring that was near the city where she lived and came all the way out to this well, indicating to the disciples that she was no doubt an outcast woman. And then as you realize that it says they marveled that he talked with a woman, the rabbis had this sort of law that they all lived by that you were never seen talking with a woman in public. And their view of a woman, of course, was so low at that time that Jesus, thank God, came into the world and changed all of that for you women. But a rabbi would never be seen talking to a woman in public. It was sort of a shame to a rabbi. And they felt it a waste of time. They felt that if you're going to speak of the things of the law and the things of God, you spend your time with the man who could do more with it. That was their, shall I say, male chauvinist opinion of these matters. So here is Jesus sitting with this woman. And they come and they marvel for all of these reasons. They're, they're amazed that he's spending all of his time ministering to this woman, working with this woman. And yet, you know, as I look at this, I realize that how typical that is. In this sense that God is so full of surprises with the people that he reaches down and touches in life. And often it is the most unlikely people that we know of that he will come and begin to work with and that he will save. And we are often left absolutely staggered by the fact that he saved them and then by the fact of what he does with them. So here they come and they are marveling that he's talking to this woman. But notice, none of them said, it says in verse 27, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? Not one of them dared to go interrupt him. You know why? They were beginning to learn something by now. That Jesus was full of surprises. That Jesus went about breaking all of the traditions of the religious leaders of his day. He paid absolutely no regard to those traditions. So you were never without a dull moment with Jesus. You, were ne you never had a dull moment with Jesus because you, he was always doing something that was different than the established religion of the day. So not one of them said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? And here's another thing. He was their leader. He was so undisputably anointed of God that they became used to watching him do things that maybe they didn't understand but that they just figured well the Lord's leading him to do it so let's see what happens so they developed this attitude of just standing back and watching to see what God would do because they already trusted the fact that he was anointed of God called of God sent of God and all these things so they marveled but they did not interrupt him now, these are just some explanations of the verse, and I want to get into some specific thoughts now. And one thing as we look at this 
is that upon her conversion, this woman, God's work became immediately her highest goal. I just love this. As soon as she comes to the place of believing upon Jesus Christ, immediately going out and telling others about Christ becomes her highest goal. She drops her water pot, which was the main goal of coming to the well, and she goes out and begins to share Christ. Look at verse 28. It says, The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Now, I love her approach. Because just imagine, remember who she is. She's a woman who's had five husbands. She's now living with a man who's not her husband. She's an outcast woman. She has to go to the well in the hottest part of the day to avoid all the women that would be at the well in the most comfortable part of the day around six in the evening. So for this woman to go back into the city, outcast that she was, and start telling everybody, I have found the answer to life and you need to go and follow him as I have. Well, they would have just laughed her off. I mean, who are you to tell us about the answer to life? I mean, who are you to tell us about anything? You can't even keep your own life together. I mean, who are you living with now? You know, this kind of a thing. But instead, she goes back, and she is so wise in her approach, and I'm certain that God led her. She goes back, and she says, Come and see a man who told me all things that ever I did. And their understanding of the Messiah was such at that time that he would be able to have this kind of knowledge, the Samaritans even. So she intrigues them with that. And then, rather than saying, this is the Christ, the testimony of some outcast lady, she says, could this be the Christ? So she leaves it open to them to come and see. So she says, come and see. And I like this because over the years I have discovered that this is often one of the best approaches you can use. Often just a fresh, simple witness of Christ will reach the hearts of those who could never be moved by lofty arguments on the deep theological doctrines of God. But rather just to say, come and see. A bold, loving, fresh invitation that says, come and see the goodness of the gospel for yourself. Sometimes there is no better approach than that. And that's why we have to be so sensitive to the leading of the Spirit in our witnessing. I mean, you can go, as the years go by, become deep and profound in your theology and just go out all loaded up to lay all your knowledge on people. But sometimes we forget these people don't even know God yet. So your great lofty arguments only bore them. Often one of the best approaches you can do is the approach of this woman herself right here. She says, come and see. Could this be the Christ? Come and see for yourself. And it often produces a greater effect than some of these great arguments and even apologetics that you have learned. Is it effective? Look at the result. Verse 30. Then they went out of the city and came to him. They wanted to go see for themselves. You know, this should really encourage you. Because, you know, we're all at different points in our knowledge of the things of God and the word of God. And yet each one of us are called to do our part in evangelism. Some of us could argue all the day long doctrinal issues. And thank God for the doctrine that we have and that we can rightly divide. But not all of you can do that. 
And yet, all of you are called to do your part in evangelism, so this should greatly encourage you that all of you can do what this woman did. There's not a person here among us that has come to know Christ in a true way that can't go out of the walls of this building and say to a lost individual, come and see for yourself. This is what he's done for me. Come and see if he'll do it for you. We can all do that, and I'm encouraged by that. And then if you could just jump down to verse 39 here in chapter 4, you can see more of the results. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed, notice, because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, this is so good, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and we know this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So does it work to say, come and see? Of course. And there is a time in which we have to be urgent and very definitive with people. There is another time when God would lead us to say, come and see, find out for yourself, put God to the test. And if you're honest, he will not fail you. And so you see them all turn out. And you know another thing that you find here? You find one of the highest titles given to Jesus Christ, the most comprehensive titles given to Jesus Christ anywhere in the New Testament, and especially up to this point, given in John, in the Gospel of John, given to Jesus, and it is given by the Samaritans, when they come to know him as a result of his preaching, they call him the Savior of the world. I love that. They came to understand, really, more than some people are willing to embrace and understand today. And their testimony of Christ and the title that they give him is taken by the Holy Spirit and set down as a truth. Not something to be dissected and controverted. The Savior of the world, that's who he is. This is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So I want to encourage you, when you leave here today, go out into your life and realize you can say, come and see. Any one of you can say that. And if you will say that, you will be right in line with this woman and you will see effects come forth in your life. Reminds me of Revelation twenty-two seventeen, where it says, And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take of the free gift of the water of life. Let him who hears say, come, come and see. Upon her conversion, God's work became her highest goal. And that is the work of the Spirit of God. Let's go to another thought here. Jesus lived with the work of the Father as his highest goal. And I love this. Look at verse 31. In the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. So in the middle of all this, they're watching all this, and finally they just butt in and they say, Hey, you sent us to buy food. You're tired and hungry. It's time to eat. You can see them getting a little hibachi going over on the side, you know, their portable backpacks unfolding and getting all things set up. Come and eat. And they are not anticipating the comment he gives them back. And he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Now here's a very interesting thing. It happens often in the Gospel of John. Jesus will say a spiritual statement and it will be misunderstood by those that he is saying it to. They will take it in the, the material sense 
He has a spiritual meaning, and then he'll go on to unfold the meaning that they do not understand because they're still living on a low level and don't, haven't yet risen to the heights of which he's trying to take them. So he says, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And therefore said in verse 33, the disciples to one another, has anybody brought him something to eat? I mean, that's about as complicated as they made the matter. Totally, you know. And verse 34, Jesus said to them, and this is just so good to see how the Lord works with us as his disciples in our ignorance. He said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. You know, when I came to this well, I was very hungry. When I came to this well, I was very tired. But you know what? I've lost my appetite because I have experienced at this well the very thing that gives me more fulfillment in life than anything else, and that is to lead a lost person to salvation. I have become so exhilarated talking to this outcast, immoral woman and bringing her to the well of living water that exists for her that I've lost my appetite. I'm not even hungry. I want to talk about the things in the kingdom. Master, eat. Not hungry. Why not? Oh, I'm so fulfilled already. Oh, man. And you can just see his exhilaration. And they're hanging back marveling and learning so much about what energizes us as God's people and how energized we become when we are involved in the work of the kingdom. And so here Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me, the will of God, which was to lead lost people to God. His supreme source of fulfillment on earth was to do that will. And another thing is that his supreme goal on this earth was to finish that work. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish the work. Do you see what is being discussed here? What is being discussed here isn't even Jesus' work, it's the Father's work. I've come to do the Father's work. I'm on assignment from the Father. I envision myself, I see myself and understand myself in these terms. I'm a sent one. I am a sent one. I've been sent into this world to do a job. I've been sent into this world to do a work, and it's not my work, it's His work. And I find His work to be so exhilarating that I love it. I love it more than food and drink. I love it above all things. And I am so committed to that work that I am not going to stop until it's finished. The very driving passion of my life is to do it and then to do it all the way out to the very end. I call it going all the way out to the very edge. So here is Jesus. Greatest goal is to finish the work of the Father while He is here on earth. Nothing could sidetrack Him from that. Nothing. Now, what I see from all of this then, as you see the woman converted and her highest goal becomes to do the Lord's work, drops her water pot there at the well, runs off to tell people about Christ. As you see Jesus here with His highest goal to do the will of the Father and finish His work here on earth. What I see very obviously then is this. We are to live with the work of the Father as our highest goal. And we are to learn that our supreme fulfillment in life is going to come from doing it. And that our supreme goal in life must be to finish it. And I find great security in this reality. I am a sent one. I've been sent into this world. 
And I have a job to do. And my job is totally unique. And I look at this where Jesus says in verse 32, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And then verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. And I realize this is the way to live life. To envision yourself as a sent one. Now guess what? I'm not wandering through life anymore. You remember growing up and wondering what you were going to do with your life? You remember in high school of all places, being asked what you're going to do with the rest of your life? You don't even know who you are in high school. You are in the chaos of adolescence and sub-adulthood, right? I mean, you're not a full adult and you're not even fully a teenager anymore. You're kind of caught in there somewhere. And so in the chaos of being a high school person, people start coming around saying, what are you going to be with the rest of your life? You got to think about it now. You got to get it all in place now. You got to get ready for college and your career and, and the rest of your life. And you're thinking to yourself, I don't even know if I'm still a kid. I think I'm an adult sometimes and think I know everything, but I don't even know who I am. And you live in this chaos. And then you make your decision. And you give yourself to all those years of college. And then you come out of college on the other end and you begin to wonder, should I have done this? I'm older and I'm wiser now. Do I want to spend the rest of my life as a such and such? It's very difficult, isn't it? You know, in the middle of all that, to become a Christian and to know that above and beyond that, that I am a sent one is a wonderful thing. To know that I have a goal in life from God is a wonderful thing. To know that whatever kind of degree I hold, which personally, I don't know, hold any degrees except when I have a thermometer in my mouth and check whether I have a fever or not. But to, <laughs> to know that whatever degree you hold, that and whatever you do to get paid, that above and beyond that, you have this direction. You've been sent by God. And if you're a Christian today, you have been sent out in the world to be the light of the world. You have a post. It may be a full-time position in ministry or it may be a full-time position at a job. It may be a full-time position as a mother in your home. But you are a sent one. Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I am a sent one and to finish his work. There is such great security in that. Paul the Apostle got a hold of that spirit and he lived that way. I want to show you, turn in your Bible to the book of Acts, to chapter 20, to verse 17. And here, Paul is on his way to Rome. Jerusalem, he ends up in Rome eventually in prison, but on his way, it says from Miletus, which is on the beach, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. He had founded that church and raised up those elders with his discipling. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know, Acts twenty seventeen verse 18, he said, you know that from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. Serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you. 
if I can just stop in the middle of where I'm going right now. Verse 20 has become one of the great themes of my life. Paul says, I have kept back nothing that was helpful. You know, as you come to the Lord, begin to get a sense of a calling in your life in this direction we're talking about, there's a certain point in your youth, whether you even be old, but you're a new Christian, in your newness to it all, that you want to be powerful and you want to have people see you as being this powerful, dynamic thing in the kingdom. For a long time, I wanted to be powerful. I'll tell you, there's only one thing left now that I want to be and that's helpful. That's all I want to be for the rest of my life. I want to be at my post doing what I've been sent to do and I want to be helpful. That's it. Paul said, I have kept back nothing that was helpful. I lived among you to be helpful. And I want to encourage all of you in that direction to live your life with the goal not to be powerful, but to be helpful. If you know God and you walk with Him and you live in intimacy with Him, the power will be upon your life and your ministry. He'll take care of that. You be helpful. Let God take care of the powerful part. He says, I've kept back nothing that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you and I taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. Nothing is going to turn me from this, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Except this, that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. I don't know the details of what's waiting for me there, but I know this. There's going to be chains, which means I'll be in prison. And there's going to be tribulations, which means it's going to be a tough time. There will be persecution. It's not going to be a happy time. It's going to be one of the most difficult times of my life. But I know this is where I'm supposed to go, so I'm ready for it. And the Spirit has prepared me for it. And then he says in verse 24, But none of these things move me. Talk about change, talk about prison, talk about tribulation. Paul says, hey, you're talking about my life. None of these things move me. Why? He says, nor do I count my life dear to myself. I gave that up a long time ago, he says. Why? So that I might finish my race with joy. I understand there's a finish line for me. I understand there is a work carved out for me that has an ending to it. And I want to finish my race with joy. And notice this, the ministry which I have received from the Lord Jesus. He had received a ministry. It was specific. It had boundaries. It had parameters. There was an edge to it and there was a finish to it. So have you. You have received a ministry from the Lord Jesus. Now that ministry will evolve with your growth. It'll be general in the beginning as you just help. And it'll become more and more specific the more you help. The more you move, the more you'll be directed. I've used the, the illustration before that a car is very hard to steer when it's just sitting in the driveway. But just get that car out moving even five miles an hour and you can steer it in any direction you want. I mean, many of you drive down the freeway steering with one hand, right? Some of you steer with one finger. I've seen you. Wrote it down to, to put it into a sermon. Thought it was a good illustration I could use sometime. Just kidding. I drive with a finger myself sometimes. Just la, 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 la. But you get the thing moving and you can steer it easily. That's the point. And if you wonder why I've been encouraging you, get involved, help out. It's because once you get moving, God's going to start answering a lot of the questions you have in your life about who am I and what have I been sent to do? Be very general in the beginning. 
But the farther you go, the more you move, the higher you climb, the more definitive it's going to become and more specific. He said, I have a ministry I've received from the Lord. I live. Nothing can derail me from going on to finish that ministry that God has given me and to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. This is my whole life, he says to these elders on the beach of Miletus. So in John 4.34, when Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work, we are given some great direction for our lives. Don't turn back there. Turn instead to 2 Timothy, to chapter 4, to verse 6. Now, there's an interesting dynamic here. You see Paul on the beach at Miletus with the elders from the church at Ephesus, and he's trying to impart to them the very thing that Jesus was trying to impart to the disciples at the well. And then time goes by. And Paul ends up in prison. And he is down to within days, perhaps a few weeks of the end of his life. He knows that the time has come for him to die and go to heaven. And he knows that the way he's going to do that is by execution. And when he penned these words in 2 Timothy in chapter 4, it was literally days before they took him out. And I believe it was on the Ostian Way. And they took him to the roadside and put his head down on a chopping block and chopped his head off. And he was launched into eternal life. When he was writing these words to Timothy, he knew he was at the very end of his race, the very end of his work. And he's seeking to cultivate within Timothy the very attitude that he carried with him all the way down to his death. And that is the attitude that Jesus was speaking of at the well. And so in 2 Timothy 4.6, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. This is the final offering right here. I know this is the final sacrifice in my life. And the time of my departure is at hand. In verse 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. I'm done. And you notice he uses the metaphor of the athlete because it's especially descriptive of the life of the believer, full of discipline, full of difficulties, full of stress and strain, full of endurance, and finally it ends with victory. So he uses the metaphor on purpose. And then in verse 8 he says, There is laid up for me, finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord the righteous judge will give me on that day and not to me only, now he includes all of us that follow after, but all those who have loved his appearing. So here is Paul, his work is over and the glory of it all is that he had completely captured the spirit of Jesus Christ at the well when he says, my meat is to do the will of the Father, the work that he has sent me to do and to finish that work. Paul completely embraced that with his life and he went down to the final day living like that. And notice, he is prepared to meet God. Look at verse 6. He says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is at hand. I'm ready to meet God. He is certain that his death is imminent and he is content. Get this, he is content with the record of his service. Content with the record of his service. And confident because of that, in verse 8 of the reception he's going to receive from his Savior. 
He's excited to go. He's ready to go. You remember back when he wrote to the Philippians, he really wasn't ready to go yet. He said, I'm torn between the two. He said, whether to stay here, which is needful for you, or to go and be with Jesus. That's all over now. He knows now he's at the finish line and he's ready to go. And he's confident about his record of service. If you were to sit with there and say, Paul, is there anything that you left undone? He could say honestly to you, no. I lived my life right out to the edge of my sphere. I did the work, the ministry that God gave me to do. I gave it everything I had. He wrote to the Corinthians and he said, I labor more abundantly than anyone, than all of the apostles put together. Why? Because of this great anointing on his life, not bragging. It's fact. And he said, all that I've done, I've done by the grace of God. Gave all the glory to God. So Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I love reading the life of George Whitfield. If you've never read his life, he was a great British evangelist. And if you've never read his life, um, Arnold Dallimore has written a wonderful biography on his life. In fact, he did such a great job after studying the life of Whitfield for 40 years that he wrote a great, fairly massive volume on his life. And then for those that are not so given to reading, he wanted to introduce them to Whitfield as well, so he wrote a shorter biography in paperback. And, of course, that's the one I read. But you can read that one, too. We carry it in our bookstore. The life of Whitfield will just melt your heart. Charles Spurgeon used to say, I have an example, Christ and Paul in the Bible. But if you ask me to point to one human individual that has given me the direction to pattern my life after a human hero out of the Bible and in practical life, he said, I point to George Whitfield, whose life was all wing, all fire, and all force. And he said, I stumble along and follow his example to the best of my ability. Well, Whitfield was like that down to the very last day of his life. He exhibited this great devotion to Christ and on the last day of his life he preached several times, rode all over by horseback. Finally he was so tired and he went to his room and prepared for bed. Then someone came and asked him to speak one more time because a crowd had gathered outside. Although very tired he picked up a candle and said he would preach until the candle burned out. Then that was it, no more preaching for the day. Almost a summary of his life. So he went out and he preached to this crowd. An hour later, the flame flickered and died on the candle. And Whitfield closed in prayer and he went inside. Went into his bedroom, put his gloves where he always put them. He went to bed at the same time every night of his life, 10 o'clock. Got up at 4 o'clock in the morning every day of his life. So he put his gloves and everything in the same place he always put them. The next morning he was found on his knees beside his bed. His life was over here. He had gone to be with Jesus. The flame of his earthly existence had glimmered and died. It was done. But you know what? He went down to the very, very end and he finished. He completed the ministry God had given him. There's so many distractions in this life, brethren. So many things to distract you. So many rationales you can come up with as to why you don't have to help in the kingdom. As to why you can't help because I'm just a nothing. How could God ever use someone like me? Oh, there, there, you poor nothing. Of course he could never use you. You're such a worthless creep. You know, these dialogues that go on. 
Listen, here is a woman who had five husbands, an immoral, unstable, unhappy, unfulfilled woman. And she gets born again and runs, drops her bucket, and runs to lead others to Christ. And her message is so simple because she doesn't know hardly anything. Come and see for yourself. And a whole city turns out and revival breaks out in Samaria. Later, you go on the book of Acts and you read of Philip, a deacon in the church, just helping in physical things, a man filled with the Holy Spirit and faith. And God begins to use him. And you keep turning the pages in your Bible. You see him there. He's appointed to be a deacon, a helper in the church. And the next thing you know, you turn another page and revival's broken out in Samaria. And who's down there? This former deacon preaching up a storm, leading all these people to Christ in Samaria. Why? Because Jesus had been there before, because an immoral woman had gotten converted, because she cared enough and loved God enough to make the goal of her life to go out and call people to Christ with all that she knew. And so Philip comes later and enters into those labors. Well, we are entering into the labors of others that have gone before us, but the call is the same, and we are given unique ministries, each one of us within that call, and may God help us each one to finish the work. There is no higher goal in all of life than that. And then there is the motivation for the highest cause. You deal with the goal, you understand your personal ministry in life, and it becomes your highest goal. Then what you do is you find the highest cause to apply yourself in, and that's the Great Commission. And it is the ripe harvest, as Jesus terms it. Look at verse 35 of John 4. He says, Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. Now you can get all lost in the details of, you know, the whiteness of grain and isn't it really rotten when it's ripe and all that and go on an endless discussion to come up with what he's really saying here. But in the end, you'll come all the way full circle back to the fact that he's talking about saving souls and they're ready to be saved. That's his point. And in verse 36, he says, And he who reaps reaps, receives wages, the blessedness of being involved, and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. Paul said that. He said, I've sowed the seeds, Apollos, one sows, one preaches, another reaps. We work together. He said, I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Now, all of this is to say, you're all hung up on whether or not I want to have dinner just because you came back from the market. And what I want to say to you is that I've lost my appetite and my exhilaration of being used to lead someone to salvation. And what I want to say to you is that if you miss everything else, guys, as we're moving along and I'm discipling you, there's nothing more important than for you to realize this. People are ready to be saved. Allow God to use you to save them. You're in this Samaritan place, a place that Jews don't normally like to go to. You probably went full of prejudice to the market in town. And when all, ooh, look out, don't touch that Samaritan. And let's get back to Jesus and let's have dinner. And this is the only thing on your mind in this place of all these lost souls. And as you've thought nothing of nothing but the food, I want you to know I've thought nothing of nothing other than the souls. And I want you to learn to think like that too. 
And he says, and here's the evidence that the harvest is ripe. People are ready in Samaria right now, he's saying, to be saved. Here's the evidence, this woman. And then the wonderful sovereign providence of God kicks in. And they begin to come out to him from the city as just proof of what he's saying. And in verse 39, many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them and stay two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So as he's talking to them, no doubt the the men of the city are coming down dressed in white, and he's pointing at how the fields are white for harvest, and here are hundreds of people dressed in white coming ready to be saved. So you read then in verse 43, I just want to read over this. Now after two days he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee... The Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had also gone to the feast. All these verses really point back to the urgency of our Lord's words in verse 35. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes Look at the fields of the world. They are already white for harvest, ready to be harvested. If you want to use the grain analogy, if he is indeed talking about grain, wheat, when it's ripe, is not white until it is overripe. So perhaps he's saying, not only is the harvest ready, it's more than ready. It's ready already. So you get ready and start getting involved in it. Now what I want to do with all of this is realize that this is the highest cause of all. If you want a cause in life, let it be the Great Commission. Don't allow yourself to become so sidetracked in life with peripheral causes that you miss the greatest cause of all. Now, as I said earlier, you can work in a church, you can work full-time in the ministry, you can work outside as a carpenter, you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, whatever. But that doesn't change the fact that you are a sent one. That doesn't change the fact that the highest goal of all is your ministry in this world, as the light of the world. And it doesn't change the fact that the highest call overarching all, cause overarching all of the other causes is the Great Commission. And inherent within here are, is all kinds of motivations. They're not vivid on the top, but they are here. And I just want to state five motivations that are really latently here in one way or another. Five motivations for the highest cause of all. Why should I go get involved in the Great Commission? Why should I help? Why should I get moving so I can be steered by God? Let me give you five good motivations. First of all, because we are under marching orders. First of all, because we are under marching orders. You see, we have a captain over us. He's the captain of salvation, Jesus Christ. And we are not at liberty to set our own priorities in the kingdom of God. We don't have that liberty. 
you're a sent one and there's a captain over you and he has marching orders for you and for me. So we are not at liberty to set our own priorities. That is a great motivation in and of itself. But what are the marching orders? They're found in Matthew 28, 19. Could you turn there in your Bible? Matthew 28, 19. These marching orders are found in many other places, but very clearly here. Here are the marching orders. Jesus says, Go therefore. First of all, he speaks to them of his great authority, all authority and power having been given to him. And then he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Here is the marching orders with the source of the power. All authority and power has been given to me. Therefore, go. Why? Because I'll go with you. I want to take the power and authority that's been given to me. I want to channel it into you and then out through you as you go out and reach the entire world with my message. It is a wonderful thing to have these marching orders and to be encouraged at the same time that it is His power that sustains us. Does God want you to help? Yes. Does God call you to help uniquely? Yes. Will God give you the power? Yes. Do you have marching orders? Yes. And it is the greatest cause in all of life. Amy Carmichael is a name that has become familiar around this church. She went to the mission field. She was turned down by many missionary societies. They didn't think she had the right stuff to do it. She went to the mission field, originally to Japan, then to China, but ended up in India as the mission field of her life. She was on the mission field in India for 53 years. With the exception of going home only once to minister to whom she affectionately called the DOM, which was the dear old man back in her whole hometown. It was like a father to her. With the exception of going home one time early on to minister to him, she never took a furlough for 53 years. She went alone to India, stayed there for 53 years ministering in an orphanage-style ministry. And you know what it was that gave her the motivation to go? Two words. You know where they're found? Right here in Matthew 28, 19. You read the first two words, Go therefore. At her time, she had the King James Bible. It said, Go ye, the old King James. She read, Go ye. And it began to echo through her soul. And God began to put a call upon her life. And finally, she packed her bags and left. And for 53 years, ministered in southern India. And the foundation of it all was go ye. It's now go therefore, because we have the new King James. Go therefore. These are the marching orders. And you know what? There is enough in those two words to motivate you to march for life for Jesus and to go forth and do that work until you die, no matter where it takes you, no matter how hard it gets. And that's the vision.
And that has been the vision from the very beginning. Do you hear the marching feet? Do you hear them? You see, in a world of of people in America where 75% of the population of America says they're born again, and yet our society seems to indicate by the way it lives that almost no one could be born again. Do you hear the marching feet? Do you, do you see the need for this mentality? I'll tell you, David Livingston had it right when he said God had only one son, and he was a missionary, and that's why I'm one. Jesus was bound geographically. He was born and lived his life out, his entire life, until he died with just within really a few miles of where he was born. So for Jesus, the geographical parameters of his ministry were right around where he was born and lived out his whole life. For some of you, it may be the ends of the earth. For some of you, it may be the East Coast, Midwest. But whatever it might be, the important thing is that we understand with Jesus and with Paul, my meat is to do the will of the Father. I have been sent, and I don't want to stop until I finish what he has sent me to do. I want to go forward. I want to go on. I want to go higher and higher. That's how I'm going to live my life. Well, we haven't finished the message, have we? And we've run out of time, so we'll stop right here on the first of five motivational things for the greatest of all causes. Let me leave you with this thought. Recently, I've been blessed by God to go to Austria and see the Alps, some of others in our church. High in the Alps, there is a monument raised in honor of a faithful guide who perished while ascending a peak to rescue a stranded tourist. Inscribed on that memorial stone are these words, He died climbing. I love that. He died climbing. You see, in the Christian life, when it's all said and done, if it is done right, those words could be put on every grave of every Christian. Died climbing. Here's Paul in the Mamertine dungeon. He knows he's going to die within days writing to Timothy. And even confined to a rat-infested dungeon, he's moving forward, discipling Timothy from the inside of this dungeon in the last hours of his life, moving forward, climbing higher. And when that axe hit his body and took his head from his body, he was climbing. He died climbing. May God help us all that we go down to the very end, climbing. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the encouragement and the challenge of this passage before us here today. Jesus, thank you that you have died and risen from the dead and that you are still personally discipling your followers. Thank you, Lord, that you have sent your Holy Spirit to live within us and to lead us into all truth, to be to us what you were personally and physically to the disciples God, we pray in the name of Jesus that we would yield to this discipling. Bring us to that secure place of knowing what we have been sent here to do. Lead us each one, Lord, through the general years of just helping on into the more specific years of discovering we have certain gifts and then into the more definitive years of really applying ourselves to the Great Commission with that specific calling and giftedness. Lord, may the great fulfillment and satisfaction of our life be to accomplish your will. 
for your glory, for the sake of those who do not yet know you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.